dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell the billboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Hey everybody and welcome back to a brand new episode of Meryl Streep in the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. How are you this evening, Meryl McNally? I'm good. I'm four and a half months older. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's been so long. Yes, we were just, as we discussed right before we, you know, started started uh, officially recording here, when last we recorded, I was about to, well, my wife was about to have a baby, and she's now four and a half months old. That's how I know how, how long it has been, you know? <laughs> but Oh, she's so, so cute, too. She's all cheeks, guys. Like, she just is. Cheeks for days. <laughs> she's, a, she's a perfect little baby. Uh, how was your summer? It was good. It was good. It came and went. I've I've slept since then. Um, yeah, I like you asked me earlier how my summer was, and I can't really remember. Yeah, uh, it happened. Yeah, <laughs> I'm fairly confident um, there was a summer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it passed without incident, which is always a good thing. Fall's been going pretty well. Good. Good. Yeah. All right. Yeah, how about? Uh, you <laughs> is that a really a question to ask you have you have a baby <laughs> yeah no it's been a, I mean it's been a very different kind of summer I was I mean I've been it's been fantastic she is a really wonderful child very easy baby so all of that has been wonderful um I have been gigging actually pretty much like normal uh I gig I had gigs the night after she was born and the night after that you know what I mean like we it's just the way it is when you're a gigger. So, you know, crazy. Yeah. Well, and that it's because we were, we were basically told that, you know, she was going to come by a certain time or they were going to make her come. And then all of a sudden things changed and, you know, it was a week or two later. So I, I had put a couple of weeks aside that I, I didn't need to put aside. And then after that, I, when I could have used them, that's when I was out gigging. (laughs) So anyway, yeah, it is, it is what it is. You cannot plan when you have a baby. You, it's just, you know, it's one of those things, but anyway, the real question is what have you seen since then that you would like to talk about? Um, I saw Catherine called Birdie. Uh, I think it's out on, it is out on Amazon now. Um, super charming. It stars Bella Ramsey from Game of Thrones and was directed by and written by Lena Dunham. And um, Andrew Scott is in it. Uh, Joe Alwyn. It's just super, super charming. If you want like a feel-good watch, watch Catherine Culberty. What else? I'm watching House of the Dragon, and I gotta tell you, I'm like really annoyed about it. I, I haven't I haven't started it, but did you watch Game of Thrones? Have we talked about this? So we've talked about this. We have Remember? talked about this. I have started Game of Thrones like gotcha. six times and made it like pretty deep in the first season, but I always kind of get confused about who's who and just eventually drift away. And then a couple months later, I say, you know what? I'm going to give it another go. And But I always start at the beginning, which might be my problem. I should probably just start 
a few episodes in because I'm not going to have any context anyway. I just, it, with all the fantasy stuff, I can't remember who's who. They all kind of look vaguely similar and all have weird names. And it's just, I can't keep track. I know I sound like an old man, but. No, it, they really do. And also Game of Thrones, there were there are so many families and houses yeah. and they're all vying for the throne that it gets very it just gets very convoluted and, and complex. And they tanked the ending so badly. I just like, I can't recommend anybody take the time to watch that many seasons of what was overall a really compelling show to, to be so wildly disappointed at the end. Um, And you don't need it to watch house of dragon. But I came into House of the Dragon with my, like, anger and resentment about the end of Game of Thrones. Um, And it's a lot easier to follow because it's not a bunch of families. Obviously, it's just focused on one family. And within that family, the vying for the throne, of course. But what I find is that there'll be these really amazing, compelling moments, like so cool. And I'm like, yes, I am hooked. And they have some really great actors in there. Emma Darcy being one, Olivia Cook, Matthew Smith, so compelling. And Patty Cosadine. And you're, you're hooked. And then they do something stupid with the writing. <laughs> And so it's sort of this roller coaster and I'm just irritated every week. Mm. <laughs> and you know what? It's really that they just time jump. Right. They do these extensive time jumps where they they cast all the characters and for the first five episodes you're with these set of people and then all of a sudden they time jump and they recast half of them, particularly the women. So all of a sudden you're dealing with new actors and it's new chemistry, right? Like when you're watching these actors interact, it really is sort of relearning. But then they keep time jumping every episode to the point where they're having to recast the children. And it's very difficult to keep track of who the heck everybody is because the children like the older, like the teenagers they cast to replace the children don't look like the children. Mm. Like they didn't even bother. Sure. <laughs> so you're like, and I do, I feel like an old woman. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so um, I would say because it's, you know, we're basically coming to the end of the first season. It's one season it's pretty easy to follow. Like I would say, watch it. It's pretty cool. Okay. I, yeah. And it's a prequel anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah. You really don't, you don't need game of Thrones. I'm I'm sure it helps. Yeah. I'm sure it helps in some ways. I'm sure there are, you know, callbacks and whatever, but you know, yeah, not a lot, but there's like, this isn't really giving anything away, but the whole thing of game of Thrones is this prophecy about the prince who was promised and ends up being Jon Snow. Right. And is supposedly in the Targaryen line. Well, that prophecy happened way back when, so they, Patty Cosadine is the King. He has this prophecy in hand and he believes it's, it's eminent. 
Ah. as opposed to like 200 years down the line. Um, and so that's a cool tie in for okay. sure. Nice. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask, um, there were a couple shows you live in New York. Um, there are a couple like live shows. I was curious if you've seen yeah. mostly because if I was there, I, I would have been check. I'd have been, I'd have been going and seeing if I could get a rush day of tickets at every single performance until I got in. Have you seen uh, the piano lesson? I have not yet. Mm. Are you planning? Are you hoping to? Yeah. A friend of mine is actually a producer on it. And I am, yeah, I'm so excited for her. Yeah. I do plan to see that. I also plan to see um, the production of Raisin and Sun. Yeah. That was the other one I was going to ask. Yeah. I have not seen either of those. I did see Top Dog, Underdog. How was that? Uh, I heard that's amazing. It was amazing. Um, I highly recommend that to anyone in New York. Um, those two actors are stellar. Yeah. They're just, stellar. and Susan Laurie Parks, you know, play is yeah. really beautifully written. You know, I, I forget, you know, obviously playwrights who are produced on Broadway have skill, but there, there are, there are some playwrights their their craft is so well they they're so good at what they susan laurie parks being one of them paula vogel is another like you watch their work on stage you're like ah yes this is a master it's it's amazing and i imagine the same it would feel the same in the piano lesson and raising the sun obviously um so i'm looking forward to those i did i saw funny girl i was gonna ask about that one too yeah yeah i have not seen i haven't seen leah sure i saw uh julie banco oh Beanie's understudy who took over the role when Beanie left. Um, She was living her best life. She was excellent. I just enjoyed every moment of it. She got better reviews than Beanie did. Yeah, yeah. It was a really unfortunate situation for for Beanie, I think. Yeah. I think she deserved better than she got in the media. It was, it was really unfortunate. Hard to to imagine that being true. I mean, I know, I know I do. I want to see Leah too. She's getting great reviews. Yeah. Um, I'll see if that happens. I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. And the other thing I really want to see is death of a salesman. Right. And I've had a couple of opportunities, but my schedule just didn't work. So hopefully I'll get another get another chance yeah cool but that's a good good run yeah. of stuff yeah theater's picking up it's a lot of stuff opening buzz buzz's kimberly akimbo is amazing mm-hmm. um i'm really looking forward to seeing that there's all there's all kinds of things and juliet moved from london yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting theater season cool I'm excited about it yeah cool yeah what have you been watching well, I only have one and a half <laughs> to mention here. Um, <laughs> you I, mean you haven't been watching hours and hours of films in your free time with your newborn? Not not a ton. I, we try to keep the screens off around the baby, um, and she doesn't she doesn't really sleep much during the day, which leaves you know. Usually, that's when I think parents sneak it in is when they're napping, but she doesn't really nap. She just takes really good long sleeps at night, which is we appreciate. I shouldn't complain about that. But so, um, this past weekend, um, I saw this list of 
you know, one of those early Oscar buzz thing where they went through all the categories and, um, you know, all of the actor, actress, supporting, you know, director and, and best picture. And so I actually made this. It's not a spreadsheet. I haven't gotten that like OCD about it, but I <laughs> I do have a document that I'm, I'm happy to send you if you would like, if it would be helpful to yeah. you where um, I put basically double the possible nominees. So, you know, like for picture, there's 10 possible. So I went through the top like 20 and wrote those down and then went through the like actor, actor, supporting actor, supporting actress, just to see like everything everywhere all at once is basically expected to be nominated in all the top six categories except best actor. So, and then like there are other ones further down where like A Man Called Otto and Devotion and The Inspection and Nope and The Good Nurse might get one nomination in one of these categories. So I kind of went through and put, just to see like which ones are gonna kind of rule the day. And it looks as of now, and I think this is early because only a few people have seen these movies at all. Sometimes it's just, hypothetical like these movies seem like they might do really well but i think it's late enough in the season that a lot of it has premiered at a film festival somewhere you know along the way but it looks like everything everywhere all at once is going to do really well and the banshees of inishirin is going to do really well um women talking the woman king the fablemans tar all look you know kind of positioned to get a lot of multiple nominations so there's about 30 films with all of those categories where, you know, somebody might get nominated in one of the top six that I have here. And I wrote it down so that I would kind of have an idea of like what I should try to see. And I've seen two and a half of those. One is Top Gun Maverick, which we've already talked about, but they actually think that might hypothetically get a best picture, maybe on the outlier for best director and maybe even best actor, believe it or not, which would really surprise yeah. me. But. That category would surprise me too, but I don't know. You know, the Academy is very much like, oh, you've earned your, you've earned your stripes. Yeah. Um, I definitely see it because they've expanded the Best Picture category. I can't. It's sort of like, it's sort of like Black Panther right. when when a film captures the culture so intensely, like it makes sense to toss it in there for right. for audience for ratings. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, I would be surprised if it swept the technical awards. Right. right. For sure. That'd be cool. I'm seeing Banshees of Inishrin on um, uh, Wednesday. Oh, nice. I'll be curious about that yeah. one. I'm excited. To yeah, yeah. To I'm see really that. excited about it. And then I'm I'm seeing The Good Nurse on Thursday. I'm like, nice. I'm doing a twofer. You're knocking them out. Good for you. Yeah. Um, so the one that I've seen is Elvis which they suspect might be nominated in Best Picture and is very likely to be nominated for Best Actor. The half that I saw, because it really is all I could muster, was Blonde, the Marilyn Monroe one. <laughs> I thought you were talking about Elvis for a second because I only made it through 20 minutes. Did you really? Yeah, so I, I, I say this with all due respect, I really struggle with Baz Luhrmann's sort of frenetic editing sure wait way back to way back to moulin rouge and romeo and juliet mm -hmm. and i i like i love elvis right like i was very curious to watch it but i was 20 minutes in and we were still montaging and it was still just like whopping me over the head with that editing and it never it just like refused to settle into any sort of rhythm 
or pace and I was in no mood for it and I was like and we're turning this off interesting I I need to I would like to go back to it because I have heard amazing things about Austin Butler's performance yeah and um I want to see it I do yeah (laughs) well I I have to say I'm coming from almost exactly the opposite space which is I'm not particularly an Elvis fan, you know? I yeah. like he's fine, but I'm I've never really been a fan. I've never been I've never like been interested in like seeking out his work necessarily. You know, you hear his songs and you're like, "Oh, that's cool." But I I don't know, just something about him has never like been particularly interesting to me. Um and I sort of feel wishy-washy about Baz Luhrmann. I loved Moulin Rouge. Um Australia was okay. Uh, I never did see Romeo and Juliet. There are a couple... I forget the other stuff that he's done since then, actually. But um, I don't, like, have an allegiance to him in any stretch, but also don't really dislike him in any way. So the only people that I I know who had seen Elvis had completely different reactions. Um, I saw... I, I heard from some people, they were like, it was okay, it wasn't so good. And then I heard from somebody else, it was the best movie I've seen in 20 years. I was like, I know, isn't that, that's a statement right there. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that, that's the fascinating thing about Baz Luhrmann, right? Right. Like, I think you either love it or you don't. Like, I don't think anyone, I'm not sure anyone feels like super blasé about it, right? Like, no opinion. Yeah. So (laughs) I I went in just kind of curious based on those disparate reactions, because I don't know. Actually, I, I talked to more than one person who felt kind of meh about it, like it's not so good. And then, like I said, somebody who was like, this is the best movie, you've got to watch it. And I got to say, I mean, it's certainly not the best movie I've ever seen in 20 years, but I really liked it. I actually liked it way more than I thought I would. Way, way, way more than I thought I would. Um, but I think there's something to those like modest expectations. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not attached to Elvis, so... Maybe that's part of why I liked it was I found it interesting and I didn't go through um, thinking like, you know, oh, that isn't factually correct. Or, you know, this is this was really more like this or, you know, like that kind of thing. Right, right. Which I don't know is an endorsement of the movie necessarily either. But (laughs) yeah, I think I think the other thing, too, I need to go back to it. I think the other thing, too, is I. I, once upon a time, was a huge Elvis fan. I grew up watching all of his movies. My first CD I ever bought was Elvis. Wow. And um, I remember watching, like, really bad Lifetime, like, movies based on his life. Um, And then, you know, somewhere along the line, I started to get a little more educated about music history and... Mm -hmm you know, the music he appropriated from black artists and, you know, his whole, his whole story with, um, Priscilla, you know, basically locking her up in Graceland. She was a child and I, (laughs) I mean, it's hard. It's hard to then turn around and watch a film that really celebrates him um I I don't want to villainize him either and obviously it was a 
I mean, he was just a cultural phenomenon for right. sure. Like he was so, he was so talented. Yeah. Well, and this, um, I mean, again, this is not necessarily, this won't sound like an endorsement of the movie. This is exactly like what we were saying was wrong with the iron lady in our last episode, actually. But this, I don't feel like this movie really does take a stand on Elvis. Like he doesn't, he's the stuff with the, Priscilla. The Colonel. Yeah. It, the Colonel? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's the thing is like, with Elvis, like, the stuff with Priscilla, like, it's portrayed as, like, Priscilla was absolutely, like, abused in, in various ways. Like, emotionally, and, you know, it, they don't... Yeah. Anyway, we won't get into other stuff, but I mean, like... And, and the performances all around are really good. And I don't think he's portrayed as... it's There's a little bit more in there than the appropriation of, of black m- music. They kind of they they do a little bit of the white savior thing with elvis basically kind of implying that he like helped raise these people up like little richard i'm not so sure he did maybe he did i guess i don't know enough to speak um it's it sort of seems like if you consider like just covering their music raising them up then sure he did but like you say there's another word for that which is appropriation and you know uh (laughs) It depends on your point of view, I suppose, but, you know, it's it's just one of those things where I'm not so sure that uh, I would say that he helped any of those musicians, personally. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. So, we also have to talk about Blonde. I can't bring myself to watch it. Um, <laughs> so, I'm very curious to hear about your halfway experience with blonde well i'm sure that you have seen stuff about blonde and um every headline that i saw about it for months was netflix making its first nc-17 movie all of the get all the details here kind of stuff and you know what if that's how you're selling the movie that's an indication that you don't have much substance to this film um and I think that's kind of true here. Again, I'm only speaking from I, I don't even I didn't even get through half. It's probably a third of it. It's a pretty long movie, and um, it was more a curiosity, which is part of the thing that I think they're successfully doing with this movie. Un- unfortunately, which is like because they talked about it so much like that, people are like, "Well, I need to see what this is." And um, I have a friend who I perform with quite frequently who's really obsessed with Marilyn Monroe. She told me yesterday she has over 60 Marilyn Monroe books, including the one that this film is based on. Yeah, six zero. Like, really, really obsessed with wow. Marilyn Monroe. And she had she had said that this was uh, just an extraordinarily demeaning... She, she kind of blasted it and talked about how extraordinarily manipulative and, you know just like just terrible it was that they had really taken so many liberties it really didn't reflect the truth at all and it's one thing if you do that and say like this is an interpretation a hypothetical like possibility of what her life might have looked like but they kind of portray it as this is her story well it's based on joyce carol oates book right which is a work of fiction right Um, and they really did not address that well in their marketing right and you're right. They touted it as essentially a biopic. Right. And I really, like, from the get-go, I just really questioned a man writing and directing this film because we've had so many examinations of Marilyn's life in in both book and film version. It's like, I'm not sure there's anything new to say. 
<laughs> and there's certainly probably not anything new to say with a man at the helm. <laughs> well, and to that end, I mean, one of the things that you'll see in any review is she spends most of the movie topless. I mean, it is it is most of the film that she is naked. And there are... There are scenes, I actually didn't get to this. I didn't know this. My friend that I was talking about told me this. This is, I didn't get to this part of the film. They said there was a scene in which the camera goes up her vagina. What? Yes. What in it, the actual... I know. And that's what I said. I, was, I mean, how can, how can you do that in 2022? I mean, not that, you know what I mean? That's insane. Wow. I didn't even know that. I... I, and I've read a lot about it. Yeah. I, oh my God. I, clearly, a lot of people are just staying away from the subject altogether. Right. Because. And there's, you oh. know, pretty. There are some pretty strong and pretty disturbing rape scenes as well. It's basically torture porn, is what it has been pretty accurately described as. So it's, it's really something. And yet, at the same time, the performances are really good. So it's tough. And yeah. like, it, it's one of those things where like, it really feels like they made a movie and who knows it, what the actors thought they were signing on for. You know what I mean? That's, it's a really complicated thing, but you know, there is a chance that, uh, they didn't really know that basically how it was going to be marketed anyway, or how it was going to come across as a finished film was so, you know, exploitative, like it's knowingly exploitative, I think, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So I'm not going to recommend that there is a chance that she, you know, gets in there with the best actress, but I think there's so much kind of icky vibes around this film that I'm, I'm kind of going to be surprised if she does. I know, which is so unfortunate that her performance will be tainted by, right. The noise around the movie but yeah I think it, I think it will be yeah I just it's so fascinating because when like talking about this I find myself feeling really awful for Anna Diarmas but right. also for Marilyn Monroe right <laughs> like oh again yeah well <laughs> like this this poor woman yeah there are um the other big thing, not to dwell on this too much, because we do have another movie to talk about today, but the other thing that everybody's talking about is there is a, it, it almost feels like a pro-life movie in the sense that she, um, she has an abortion and the, the dead talking fetus is like a character in the film, which again is not something that I have gotten to yet, but that is like, apparently Whoa. it says, mommy, are you going to kill me like the other ones or something like that it, yeah like a character that's guys if you can see my face right now it's not good yeah <laughs> not good yeah so okay. anyway good times yeah i don't know if it's uh if it's worth the choices, choices were made choices were made and <laughs> careers were <laughs> everybody go watch Catherine called birdie yeah punch your palate yeah, go watch the go watch the Woman King. Go watch Women Talking, which I'm very excited for. I have not seen Woman King yet, and I, have not. I am desperate to. It looks so good. Yeah, no, I haven't seen any of those, but um, I'm I'm just saying like those are clearly going to be better choices. Tar, yeah. I'm super excited for Tar with Kate Blanchett. She's supposed to be extraordinary in that. She might be joining that three Oscar club pretty soon. Yep, I think so. But anyway. Yeah. 
Um, all right, shall we talk about Marvin's Room? Yeah, let's do it. All right. You could go watch Marvin's Room too, guys. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's good. pleasant. Yeah. All right, you want to give us a uh, summary? Yes. Diane Keaton plays a woman named Bessie Lacker, who for the last 20 years has been taking care of her invalid father and aunt in Florida, correct? Yep. They're in Florida. Close to Disney, and yeah. She's, you find out very quickly, this is not a spoiler, she's diagnosed with leukemia and she's forced to call her estranged sister, played by Meryl Streep, uh, who plays Lee Lacker. She calls her and um, lets her know that she needs her to be tested um, for a bone marrow match. And Lee has two sons, the older son played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who is troubled and at the beginning of the film... I actually won't give this away, even though it happens right away. He does something that lands him in a mental institution. And um, and then she's got a younger son as well. And so they end up going to Florida to spend time uh, with Bessie, uh, Diane Keaton. And, you know, sort of the, a, a family healing bonding ensues. Yeah. Yeah. Star-studded cast. I mean, it's a smorgasbord of who's who. You have, obviously, Meryl Streep and Diane Keaton. The father's played by Hume Cronin. Um, You've got Robert De Niro in a cute appearance as the doctor. Um, Who is the actor who plays his brother? Dan Hedaya. Yeah, so great. (laughs) In a comedic moment. (laughs) Very charming. Um, And then you get these surprise pop-ups. Kelly Ripa's in there. Uh, Cynthia Nixon, Margot Martindale. It's yeah, Gwen Verdon is a big part of it too. Oh yeah, Gwen Verdon yeah. is is yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah, it is an extraordinary cast for a for a film that like and it I you know it it had its moments like Diane Keaton was not Keaton was nominated for best actress that year. Meryl was nominated at the Golden Globes. Like it certainly was like a legit movie and everything, but it feels so forgotten since then for like this incredible star studded thing. So for context, this was the movie that Leonardo DiCaprio made in between Romeo and Juliet was right before this and Titanic was right after this. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, he's like so young. Really, I um Well, before we get there, I will say that this 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 film was actually based on a play that had run off Broadway and at the Kennedy Center in 1992, um, uh, written by Scott McPherson, who passed away that year of, of AIDS, and he was an AIDS activist. Um, and so it was nice to see that they made it into a film posthumously in 96. Um, yeah, and then they actually ended up opening it on Broadway, finally, in 2017. Oh, it had always been off-Broadway before that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it had never been on Broadway before that. So it feels a little like um, How I Learned to Drive. Yeah. Um, that had, you know, a really um, renowned off-Broadway run, but had never been seen on Broadway until this year. So yeah, it was similar. Um, I, if, if, you do, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I, the, when I grew up, I was very involved in my community theater, which uh, was 
very, very active. It's a beautiful, beautiful, like 400 seat space, just gorgeous facilities. And at the time that I lived there, I don't necessarily know enough to speak on it now, but it was run by somebody who really uh, treated it like a professional theater and he treated actors. You were expected to treat it like a professional. It was community theater. You didn't get paid, but you were expected to. Um, you know, treat it like a professional job. It was very, the sets were beautiful, everything. And I, I really don't feel like I'm just looking back on it with rose colored glasses because I was a kid. I really do think this was, was accurate. Um, and this was one of the plays they did in like 1994 or so when I would have been like 12 and I auditioned for the younger son um, and I did not get it. I, the year before we had done, um, in this, in the slot that this one was in, they do eight shows a year, but there's like one of those, they do a lot of like, you know, the bigger musicals and like a lot of like Neil Simon and farce stuff. And then there's usually like one or two ones that like the actors love. And this was in that spot. And the same woman, um, who had, who I had done the miracle worker with, who had played Ann Sullivan was cast as, um, Bessie. And so her real life son played her real life son. He got that part instead of me. It made sense and it was more convenient and he was probably better than I would have been in it. But uh, <laughs> I remember so vividly seeing it on stage, you know, before this movie came out a couple of years. And it was just, it's such a, it's such a moving and funny piece on stage too. It really, really works as a theater piece as well. Oh, I bet. So, um, so yeah, watching watching it is sort of uh, a whole, you know, trip down like, oh, I could have, you know, I could have really had an attachment to this particular piece, you know? Yeah, yeah, you have all those memories attached. That's amazing. Yeah, um, and it, it feels, it feels like a theater piece when I watch it, yeah. you know? Yeah, and um, to, to go back to what you were saying before, too, talking about Leonardo DiCaprio... Um, I felt this way about the whole film, but in particular, I, I really appreciated his performance on rewatching this. Mm. I saw the movie either when it came out or around then, like somewhere in the late nineties. I don't think I have revisited it since. And I could be remembering wrong, but I promise you it's been at least 20 years since I've laid eyes on this movie. And wow, how times change your perspective. <laughs> Did you not think he was I mean, good back then? It's not that I didn't think he was good. I think I overall just thought the movie was eh. Yeah. Right? Because I was 20 or younger. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think I was in high school. In 1996, I was a freshman. So I was like 14 or 15 when I saw this and just did not have any perspective now I watch it and I think of my relationship with my own sister we're both in our 40s and and you know the the people we've cared for and family members that have have passed and how difficult you know long-term illnesses and families can be and family dynamics and all of it right like as an adult I can watch it and just appreciate all of it so much more and his performance is part of that for sure like he was such a heartthrob at the time right every teenage girl went to see Marvin's room not for Marvin's room right they went for Leonardo DiCaprio right (laughs) um and I don't think there was a lot of appreciation for 
the level of performance he was giving. I mean, he's really excellent at it. Yeah. I think they all are. Oh, they all are. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. This is um this is some of Merrill's I think best I don't even know if I want to say comedy work, but like she's so funny in this. The way she's her her take on it is just so dead on. And one of the things that I thought was most interesting was as as we usually do with these films, you know, I try to find what I can on YouTube, like interviews and stuff. And there isn't a ton for this. I don't think she did a ton of press for this movie. I feel like this is one of those movies that maybe got a somewhat limited release. I, I don't yeah. know. Maybe it maybe it played everywhere. But um, she did this interview where the one of the ones that you can find on YouTube where a couple of things I found were interesting. She talked about how um, De, this was really a passion project of, of Robert De Niro's. He was one, you know, he was the one who like, bought the rights to this at some point, I think, and really tried to make this happen. He had been trying to make it for some some time. And so he called Merrill. She lived in California and said, there's this show that you've got to come and fly out and see. And it was Marvin's Room when it was playing off-Broadway. And so she said she and her son went to see it. And she said the thing that made her want to do it was her son loved it. And she was like, this is not a show that's like in, aimed at somebody my son's age and he thought it was amazing and so that really intrigued her and she said the other thing that i thought was really interesting about it is she um she said that originally it was supposed to be her in the diane keaton part and angelica houston in the part that she played and the interviewer kind of goes it kind of almost brushes it off and is like oh yeah that you know that that's cool and she just gets this huge smile on her face and goes wouldn't that have been interesting? Like, it almost sounded like she wished that movie would have happened, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, uh, I can't even think of one off the top of my head, but obviously she's played a, a character like Bessie. Right. Surely she has. I mean, I can totally see her doing that. Yeah, I think One True Thing is very similar and just a couple yeah. years later, you know? Um yeah, I'm I'm glad it I love Angelica Houston. I want to see that version too. It's not that I prefer Diane Keaton over Angelica Houston necessarily. It's I like Meryl in this role so much. I think Meryl in the other role to me is a little bit less interesting. I don't know. I I agree. I think um I think that combo it might be a little too obvious. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think one of the things I love about about this movie is how both subtle and authentic the performances are. Right. Like we've seen Meryl Streep in, in an iteration of a character like this, but she, she, I feel like when I've seen her do it, she's played it more for comedy. Right. And, and I, I mean, obviously she always plays the truth of the scene. It's not to imply that Meryl's is tr- over there trying to get a laugh and, right. and not doing her job. Like, I don't mean that, of course, but there's, there's something, it's just so authentic, right? Like all of her, all of her snark and her truly funny moments are, are just born out of truth. Yeah. Right? Like that and and diane keaton too i think i think this is really one of her 
most beautiful performances. It's it's really sweet and tender. Yeah. She, she nails it. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Which is why she was nominated for it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. She broke my heart. Yeah. Um, There's just sweetness just coming out of her the whole film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she's like just this unquestionably... I mean, like, she's just portrayed as really this saint right this like yeah. this person who's just unbelievable um yeah there are to give like for people who haven't watched her people who haven't watched it in a while even a good example of kind of like that dark comedy that is just so brilliant and rich it's very postcards from the edge ish yeah it has yes, a similar yeah. vibe to it her, her kind of delivery so there's a scene early in the film Meryl is basically taking Leonardo DiCaprio out of the mental institution to drive down to to Bessie's house to see if they are bone donor, uh, bone marrow possibilities, if they're matches, basically. And so they're meeting with Margot Martindale, who's who's some, you know, a counselor at the mental institution. And she's just kind of like basically mediating and being like, can these two even be in the same room, much less like get in a car and drive however many states away? And um, she asks how he's doing, and he, he kind of says, well, they're not strapping me down anymore. And she's smoking a cigarette and goes, yeah, well, don't abuse that privilege. That, <laughs> uh, the throwaway ability that she has with that line is extraordinary. Like, she's never been funnier than that line. Right? I agree. When she leaves the M&Ms on his chest, I'm like, oh, my God. It's just so good. Or when, when she's like, I really would prefer you not to smoke in here. She's like, I'll be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) So good. The, the, it's funny because the, uh, the review, the negative review that I'm going to read in a little bit, um, has something to say about this scene that I read the exact opposite way. But there's, I would say one of the more, like when I think of this, one of the scenes, and again, it's probably because I'm sure it was my audition scene when I did it, is the potato chip scene where um, Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, when they get to Bessie's house, she has these potato chips out and he, you know, like in a bowl and he takes one and eats one. And she says, you need to be asked first before you can't, you know, you can't just take. And she says, well, that's why, you know, they're out. So, you know, that's what they're supposed to do. And she makes him, she makes him give it back. And anyway, it kind of escalates. And then this poor, they make the younger kid, they like force it down his throat basically. And he's so scared to bite into the chip that he tries to make his he little. He doesn't want to leave crumbs. So he's like putting the whole thing in his mouth. But her, I mean, like it's top to bottom. I mean, such a, I can't, I feel like there was another time when we talked recently about like top to bottom, the cast here is amazing. But I mean, like really the cast here is unbelievable. It really is. And the, and the sort of, you would think at the doctor's office, the one who is essentially the harbinger of doom, (laughs) Robert De Niro's character. It's, it provides these just really light comedic, moment i mean robert de niro is truly funny in this yeah and so is his brother i mean the two of them are a duo it is just priceless the one thing my truly i mean this is so kind of the opposite of what we normally do because we normally kind of nitpick even if we like the movie we kind of nitpick the things that we don't like my only kind of nitpick has nothing to do with the performances it's sort of like 
it, it's actually the Robert De Niro, the doctor character, because they really, especially the opening scene where he's kind of, it's like almost slapstick where he's like, you know, but he's also supposed to be somebody who knows what he's doing as a doctor, because like, it's very serious. She's being diagnosed with leukemia. He's taking a lot of blood from her. You know, like he's supposed to be at the same time, this like kind of slapstick forgetful doctor who is liable to like drop stuff. But at the same time, he's also the one who delivers this like horrible news and you're supposed to like buy that. And it's, that's the one thing that kind of was a little tricky for me. I agree. It's just that introduction to him because right. the dynamic with his brother, you know, he's the smart one. His brother's kind of the, the idiot receptionist, but that, that initial like bumbling moment and then just the logistics of the doctor's office. Part of this is probably a, a, a time period issue, but like a, a doctor would not be taking your blood. The, uh, a nurse, nurse would, would yeah. and, and you'd be in a lab, right. And like, I don't think like the hometown doctor takes your blood and then goes looks at it right. in a and diagnoses you with leukemia. Right. So I mean, there were some issues. Yes. Yeah. With reality. Yeah, which I attributed. I did think of that as well, but in my mind, I kind of like excuse that as like, well, again, it's coming from the stage, and they just wanted to keep the cast like manageable. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's clearly what it was. That's how I interpreted it. And I was, you know, eh, it's such a, yeah, it's such a little thing. Yeah. I'll tell you the one part that I remember when I saw it, cause I, I know I saw it multiple times when <laughs> I sound like I'm obsessed with this production that I didn't get cast in. Ironically, a singer songwriter <laughs> friend of mine is doing the show right now is doing Marvin's room right now. Really? Yes. Uh, like a theater production of it somewhere in Pennsylvania. And, um, she she posted about it and I told her the whole story of how I had auditioned and and um anyway it's just it's still being done out there but anyway I remember when I saw it the line that killed every time was one of Aunt Ruth's lines when she uh she's taught she's trying to like diagnose Bessie before she knows and understands that she has leukemia she's talking about a couple other things and she says something about, you know, you need to take my vitamins. I'll, I'll give you one of my vitamins. And Bessie says, oh, those aren't real vitamins. And she says, oh, sure they are. Now, do you want Dino or Bam Bam? That line <laughs> killed in the 90s. <laughs> That's so good. That's not in the movie, right? That's not. Oh, I think it is. Did oh, I, is it? I think it's in there. But see, that's the thing okay. is it's like it's kind of a throwaway in the movie. But that killed in the stage production. But again, like, I mean, I think they do still make those you know the flintstones vitamins for kids i'm sure they still make them probably but every kid in america was taking those in the 80s and 90s so that was a huge laugh line because we all were taking those i don't think kids take 100 percent. yeah 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 so nobody That's really so knows what funny. they are anymore but you know isn't that crazy yeah i feel so old sometimes yeah <laughs> this is um, oh sorry go ahead i will say one other thing that i loved that they the, the aunt played by Gwen Verdon, Aunt Ruth, she has, she, she had at one point some like debilitating back issue and the doctor hooked her up with some sort of <laughs> electric pulse thing that takes away her pain. But anyway, every time she hits the button, the garage door goes up and down. Yeah. <laughs> just, oh, I got a kick out of that. Yeah. Which again, yeah, it's just one of those things where 
it's so, so specific. Well, theatrical, but it's also so specific as a joke that you, I, like, my mind went to, like, this is so unusual that I bet this is pulled from something in real life. Like, maybe not from Scott McPherson, maybe from Scott McPherson, but, like, somebody, you know? Like, somebody had to have yeah. something that weird or yeah. something close to that because it's just such a, like, unique bit that, like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I am really curious about. Um, this was directed by Jerry Zachs, yeah. and it looks like his first film. Yeah, and and then after, uh, I think he did predominantly television, yeah. if not exclusively. Mm-hmm. I would I would just love to know the story behind how he got attached to this film. You know, and and his career trajectory. I'd be I'd be interested. Yeah. Well, and he was, he, he's always been like a big theatrical director too. Cause he did like house of blue leaves and six degrees of separation and, yeah, a, you yeah. know, a bunch of other stuff. He did guys and dolls, you know, like stage production stuff too. Um, yeah. I think maybe that's what he's best known for is his, his stage work too. But. And maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe he was just so, fo- you know, so focused on, on theater and they often do that, you know, major theater directors will go over and, you know, do a movie or two and then yeah, stick stage. But Right. Yeah. And that's the thing is that, again, as we've talked about, may lend a bit of like why it feels so theatrical. And you can imagine that somebody who knows how to direct on stage, like, I don't know. I don't know how the whole process works to tell you the truth. But I mean, like, if you think about it, like if you get good producers, especially if you have Robert De Niro as, you know, one of the people who's like making this thing happen, you know, like there are people around who've been on film sets for 40 years, get a good director of photography. You know what I mean? Like have those people do a lot of that stuff and you work with the actors and kind of get the, you know, there's a lot that you can do, even if you don't know how the camera works, you know, like you can still do a good job. So I don't oh, yeah, know. For sure. I wonder if he ever. I didn't look. Did I wonder if he directed a production of this in New York? Oh, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Maybe I'd be curious. I'll 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 look at I'll look it up for next time and see. Sure. My favorite scene in it for sure is when the sisters finally sit down and talk. Yeah. In Diane Keaton's bedroom, and she tells the story about the carny. Yeah. Again, so specific. Yeah. And so jolting. Right? And but so delivered so quietly. This is just a really unique film. Yeah. And I think it gets lost because it looks it looks and feels like the other small budget family dramedies that were made in the late 90s that like don't appear to pack much of a punch but if you really watch it and listen it's really beautiful yeah well and it does that thing where like there are some moments in this movie that are so saccharine sweet that Mm -hmm. it could and some i'm sure for some people it does 
cross the line a little bit into like, you know, too melodramatic, too kind of like weepy, kind of too, I don't know, manipulative in some way. I don't particularly feel that way with this movie. I feel like they earn it every every time. But I, it's one of those movies that, like, I can see how somebody would feel that way about certain moments in there. Like, there are just, like, the moments where, like, after they drop all the pills and they're sitting there and they just kind of, like, Diane Keaton is just looking at her sister, at, at Meryl, you know, like, almost in this state of worship. She's, like, just so happy to be with her sister again after 20 years. And... You know, there are moments like uh, Gwen Verdon getting dressed up and dolled up to watch a soap opera. Get To get dressed up to watch a, a, what is it, a wedding or something on a soap opera. <laughs> Another scene that I always remember is the scene between uh, Diane Keaton and Leonardo DiCaprio where he's, like, exploring, I think it's a toolbox or something in the middle of the night or a tackle box or something, I forget. And she, uh, Bessie comes out and kind of not catches him. She's not like looking, he's not in trouble or anything, but she ends up like, you know, talking a little bit about, you know, those were his grandfathers and she tries to give them to him and he's like, oh, you know, whatever. And he, he acts like he doesn't care, but you know, of course he does. He's just a teenager. And I don't know the whole like makeover thing between them. There are moments in this that, yeah, Reed is so genuine and yet they straddle that line and do it really well where like it could so easily cross into like a little over the top. And in a way that like if it yeah. were too over the top, it would kind of ruin a lot more of the movie than. Totally. Yeah. And, and part of that line, too, is because like you said, like the the like the fumbling doctor, it doesn't quite ring true. Right. And, and I think you have that problem a little bit with with Bessie and that she does appear to be a saint. Right. And we never really do get beyond that. Right. Um, so she is uh, slightly one-dimensional in that regard. But Diane Keaton brings so much beauty to the performance, right? There's a lot of... She layers in a lot of sadness and I think some regret. Right. Um, uh, which is a testament to her. But there's also a, a problem with Leonardo DiCaprio's storyline, right? It's like this kid has done a pretty awful thing. And he is in a mental institution slash prison, but they let him out for a week right. to go to Florida with his mom. Right. And is he due back? And she's decided to stay? Does he... Like, right. what's going on there? And because it is like, oh, I've met my Aunt Bessie and she understands me, so now I'm going to be a normal teenager. I'm like, I Yeah. <laughs> but you really can, because he cre- because the writer created such a specific world, you really are able to suspend disbelief in those things. And because it's so sort of insulated, you're right. just with these characters. Well, and because the performances are so good, they draw you in anyway. You just kind of buy what they're doing. But I mean, there are exactly. there are things on the flip side too. There are scenes where like, there is that scene where, where Lee, Meryl's character, starts to really panic about like, I don't, this is not the life I want. I don't want to be trapped here. If if things go bad with Lee and she dies, I don't want to replace her and be stuck here kind of thing. So she starts packing her stuff up like she's going to leave immediately like has to get out and Leonardo DiCaprio's character comes in and basically is like, what do you do? You know, like kind of, that's my other favorite scene. Yeah. His performance in that scene is, it's so still. Yeah. Right. It's, it's so simple. He's just, I, I think what he captures in that moment for me is this just 
it's just complete reliance and faith in your parent, right? Which he hasn't showed up to that point. Right. And he's just like, where are you going? Right. And he just in earnest stands and waits for an answer. Right. Like he knows she's packing up to leave. And he's giving her this moment, this opportunity to change her mind. Oh, so good. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to divert for a minute and talk about awards yeah. stuff, and we can go Let's back it. to it if you want. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Diane Keaton was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress that year. That was the only Oscar nomination the film got. Uh, the winner that year was Frances McDormand, her first of three so far. She won for Fargo that year. Um, the other nominees were Brenda Blethyn for Secrets and Lies, Kristen Scott Thomas for The English Patient, which won a bunch of stuff that year, and Emily Watson for Breaking the Waves. Um, she was interestingly enough, not nominated at the Golden Globe Awards where Meryl Streep was nominated. Meryl was nominated in the best actress instead of Diane Keaton. You know what? That makes sense with the Hollywood foreign press. That's true. And so the kind of funny thing about this is at the Golden Globes, there are two categories. There's a comedy and, and musical or comedy and drama. So there's twice as many nominees. So it's interesting in a way that like, you know, they weren't both nominated, but um, listen to this. So in the drama category, cause most of the people who were nominated, uh, well, I guess not most of them, but several of them uh, were nominated in the, in the comedy side of things. So uh, Brenda Blevin actually won for secrets and lies. The other nominees were Courtney love for the people versus Larry Flint Kristen Scott Thomas for The English Patient and Emily Watson for Breaking the Waves. Yeah, imagine being in the category with Courtney Love and also, like, you know, English royalty like Kristen Scott Thomas and, and Emily Watson. Bread and blood. It's kind of strange. Um, right. And that year, just as a side note, Frances McDormand was nominated on the other side in musical or comedy but did not win. Madonna won for Evita and she wasn't even nominated at the Oscars. Go figure. Wild. That that was such a strange... Okay, so I'm just going to read that category too. So Madonna won for Evita. The other nominees were Glenn Close for 101 Dalmatians, Frances McDormand for Fargo, Debbie Reynolds for Mother, which is an Albert Brooks movie, and Barbara Streisand for The Mirror Has Two Faces. Wow. That is a weird-ass category right there. That's so weird. Listen, this is like a brief aside. Have you tried to rewatch The Mirror Has Two Faces lately? Uh, not lately, but within the last 10 years I have. It does not hold up well. It's, it, it, it does not hold up. It's painful. I mean, I'm not sure it was ever a good movie, to tell you the truth, but it's... No. No. Yeah. Anyway, fascinating category. Okay. Yeah. It was. It did get several... Um, Last last category for this. It was nominated for several Screen Actors Guild Awards. It was out, Outstanding Performance by a Cast, so like all of them. Um, Diane Keaton was nominated, and Gwen Verdon was nominated for Supporting oh. Actress, which is like, if you think of it, like they all got one of those. I guess Diane Keaton got two of them, but um, the, wait here, I was going to, it was another year where the cast one was kind of interesting. I'm going to see if I can pull this up really quick. The, okay. The, okay, so... The category for outstanding performance by a cast in a motion picture. So again, it's like all of the performers in a movie. Uh, I'm going to read the nominees and you tell me who you think won. Um, The Birdcage, The English Patient, Marvin's Room, Shine, or Sling Blade? Birdcage. Birdcage. 
<laughs> I'm such a good guesser. <laughs> that's also like when you think about like Sling Blade was an incredible. I haven't watched it in a while, but that's like an incredible Billy Bob Thornton movie, right? Like, or I mean, like it performance, is, I mean, but. The English Patient's incredible too, but I think about the one, it's so colorful. Yeah. But it's it's such like so much of it is slapstick and physical comedy and requires like the participation of them together, right? Yeah. Like the comedy is so just makes sense that they would want also that film is a delight. But I mean, when you think of it like what a again, what a weird category. You've got the birdcage yeah. and the English patient. In what world are those two movies being judged against each other? That's <laughs> It's just. I have revisited the English Patient many a time. Have it's, you? I have not in a long time. Yeah, it's a beautiful movie. I used it's to. Really beautiful. I used to own that. I I own the DVD now, but I used to own the like it was so long. It was on two VHS tapes. You remember those when they were like? Wow. Titanic. Yes. Titanic was too actually. Oh yeah. Oh my god. You, you know how much space we're saving in our homes yep. without our VHSs. Yep. <laughs> wild yeah and dvds for that matter although they didn't take up that much space i still have all of mine yeah yeah i I do too although i've mostly moved them into the like you know books so you don't have to like you know have them all up and everything but um so the imdb rating for this is a 6.7 which is pretty good that's about you know somewhere in the middle of of her movies it's the same rating that mary poppins returns mama mia 2 prairie home companion postcards from the edge and somehow, some way, Ironweed have. Um, we may as well say bleak, just for old time's bleak. sake. <laughs> gonna, I wasn't going to. I was going to spare you all another another utterance of bleak. But God, it's so bleak. Yeah. Um, on Rotten Tomatoes, this has an 84%, which is very good. And the only That's other movie. Good. Yeah. It's very kind of top third of her movies on that. Actually, maybe even like top one-fifth or so it's it's pretty high in her movies on rotten tomatoes the only other movie that shares that same ratings is postcards from the edge i think these two have a similar vibe i'm telling you i agree and i don't think i would have made the connection um without you mentioning it i'm so glad you did because yeah it's 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 really only it's not really the tone of the movie it's the tone of merrill's performance within the movie yeah totally um anything else you want to say about this movie no just go enjoy it. It's a it's a nice little watch. It it'll, is. it'll tug at your heartstrings. It'll make you laugh. Yeah. It might make you cry. It's a toss up. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna read a. I'm actually not gonna read a one star review. The there's only one one star review, and it's kind of very bland. It's basically just like this movie's bad. I am gonna read a very odd three star review because. Uh, it's a little long, but if you'll I indulge okay. me, I it, I think it's worth it. This this is quite the journey this person goes okay. on here. So I'm on board. I, we're all on board. We're here for it. Okay. Go for it. So, so this person, it, I usually read the username, but it's it, it's M H A J S. I'm not sure how one pronounces that. So it is what it is. The title of this, and this was posted in 2005, so quite a while ago, but also you know a solid 10 years after the movie was made. What a piece of trash. All right. I'm going to read this verbatim. On a three-star review? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, 
I, I don't know. Maybe they didn't know how this worked. I'm going to read this verbatim. There are some grammatical issues. And I again, I'm always trying to make clear that I'm not making fun necessarily of the person writing it, but I do want to read it verbatim so that I'm not coloring it in any way. All right, okay. so here's the review. This is movie is deadly awful. There are many reasons why many might say that. First of all, all the characters are horrible. The story is pretty horrible also. The performances are not bad. Actually, in some scenes are actually great. But some of the interaction between them are totally pathetic. Marvin's Room is about a family whose members haven't spoken for a while. The movie already begins bad. Leonardo DiCaprio sets fire in the house for no apparent reason. Well, he must be out of his mind. That's why later he goes to a mental institution. And for that, he gets arrested and goes to a hospital for future treatment. Meryl Streep, who plays his mother, Lee, a hairstyler, almost in the entire movie doesn't feel bad for what happens. Speak with, speaks with Hank, DiCaprio's character, like nothing really happened. In a normal situation, that wouldn't happen. A mother who has a son who burned their own house should get so angry with her son that she should even commit crazy acts. Streep doesn't act that way. DiCaprio still doesn't behave himself, and Streep seems not to yell at him enough. I mean, her son burned the house. I think he should get a punishment so long that it would have had... <laughs> that it would have had at least... I can't get this sentence right. It's so strange. I think he should get a punishment so long that it would have had to last even when the ending credits are rolling up. Streep has also one more son, Charlie. Play, this this gets a little rough. Played by Hal Scardino, who, in my opinion, is a horrible, awful, and ugly young actor. Thank God he's only been in three movies. Maybe he quit because he knew he was bad. And finally, there is a sister, Diana Keaton. I like that they finally, like, like she's the... <laughs> she's a throwaway character. We're finally getting her. Finally, there is the sister, Diana Keaton, who plays Bessie, aunt of Hank and Charlie. She lives with her father, Hume Crone, and Ruth, Gwen Verdon. Now, this two are even more silly, especially Ruth. She watches soap operas and then talks about them with Bessie, forgets to give the medications to Marvin, played by Crone. I like that she keeps saying that. And simply starts crying from out of nowhere. Marvin is an old man who doesn't even have a role. Sure, he's sick, but I think director Jerry Zach should be less cruel with the cast of his movie. <laughs> There's more. Okay, these, are the f these were the flaws from the characters. Now, let's check the story. Hank gets out of the mental institution with his mother, Lee, and they go to Bessie's place after a long time just because she's sick too, apparently to die of leukemia in the future. She needs a barren bone marrow donation from one of her nephews in order to cure herself. Once again, Lee seems not to be bothered about the fact that the house got burned and asks Hank how many songs are left for him to listen to inside of the car in order for him to get out of it. If she was really upset about what happened, she wouldn't want to know how many songs are left. She would simply say, get the fuck out of the car, you piece of shit. <laughs> you... <laughs> See what I mean? This is a journey, right? All of a sudden, there's a turn. You burned our house. You don't even deserve to look in my eyes, you monstrous fuck. But no. Wow. Yeah. And then, now indoors, a very silly and pathetic scene. Hank gets a chip potato. <laughs> What's a chip potato? <laughs> a chip potato in the table. And when he's about to eat it, Lee asks him to put it back because he's not been asked to pick it up. Anyway, she, I, I can't read the whole. There actually is quite a bit more. But I mean, like, that is... <laughs> insane right wow anyway 
<laughs> we just went silent. We were just like, okay. Taking it in. Taking it in. And she eventually starts talking about why Robert De Niro would do this and again goes back to like the summation of the the real problem for this movie for her is Gwen Verdon being silly. She doesn't like that. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, this reviewer is hitting on I, I maybe slightly less sophisticated. Right. But still, like, hitting on this issue of, like, well, some of these things don't necessarily ring true. Right. My, uh, Meryl Streep's reaction to the, to the house burning didn't even phase me because she is an avo- she's an avoidant right she, she's like i can't feel anything today right so um i'm not going to acknowledge that my house burned down right and i want to stay stay and take care of my dying sister or father like i don't want to feel anything so see you later bye yeah yeah it is uh it is a uh, it's quite a take but yeah you're right that like a lot of the points she makes and my favorite thing about that review actually is like the strong, like, what really bothers her is, like, her reaction would have been different than some of the characters in certain moments. And she thinks they're silly and, like, not funny. But then, like, other elements, like, all of the actors, she goes out of her way to talk about them in the scene where, like, instead of the character's name, which she clearly knows because she uses each of the characters' name, she talks about how Streep, uh, you know, the reactions that she says, like the lines as if Meryl Streep decided the lines to say, or like came up with it, you know, I love the rewriting of the dialogue though. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that was a dramatic reading. I know. That was very well done. Thank you. I, I got into that one a little bit. I read that one and I, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, well, the one-star review is so boring compared to this one. We have to do the three-star review on this one because it yeah. just doesn't compare. But um, That was a delight. Well, thank you. And, you know, it's funny because it is a three-star review where she, like, really trashes it. But she also says that, like, some of the performances are actually fantastic. Like, it's just all over the place. Some of the scenes are even pretty good. Right. We don't hear about those, really, because she kind of criticizes everything, or he or she kind of criticizes everything in this movie, but anyway. Well, that's Marvin's room, everybody. Very, really, really good movie and really underrated one. Did you happen to place this in your rankings? I didn't, because, I mean, really, would you expect anything more of me? (laughs) I will tell you, I have not yet as well. I kind of want a little bit more time to let it sit with me. This is one of those. I might watch it again. Yeah? Just for fun? Yeah. I think, yeah, but also to rank it. Okay. I, uh, I, I want to I wanna revisit again. It does. It holds up really well to repeat viewings. And this is a very watchable, as we, as we talk about with a lot of her movies, this is very watchable. It is not, there are some, certainly some like, you know, heavy scenes, but it never really gets like, it's not one that's going to, it's not like one true thing is going to be, you know, where it's like really devastating and really hard to watch in that way. So, um, uh, I also want to clarify what was one of my true low points in the, in the history of our podcast, you know this, but you might have forgotten it in the four and a half months since last we chatted. Our last movie, we touted as our 50th fiftieth uh, review. And immediately afterwards, I texted you and said, that was our 51st. <laughs> <laughs> but again, like, so true to form. 
<laughs> I think it's part of our charm. Yes. I don't know. I, actually, I know exactly how I got it that wrong. It's because on my list, I had not yet ranked Dancing at Lunasa or The Iron Lady, I had, which is the one we did before Iron Lady. And so I had those two sitting there and I saw 49 and I didn't put it in. I, it doesn't matter really, but there was like, I knew exactly how it had, hap- it had happened when we, when I did it. But it was one of those things where I was like, of course, this one episode where we just chat away and congratulate ourselves 20 times <laughs> about our 50th. It's not our 50th. Was Dancing at Lunasar our 50th? Yes, without gotcha. realizing it. So this is, this is, and not our 51st episode. We're significantly more than that. We're in our 60s in terms of episodes. But um, yeah. In terms of reviews, this was our 52nd film today that we just did, Marvin's Room. So, gotcha. Um, cool. Shall so we? We've been doing this since 2017. Yeah, five years. That's, you know, <laughs> we don't we don't get out a lot of episodes, all things considered. But actually, that's not a terrible pace either, you know. No, it's like on average 10. Well, no, because how many episodes have we done? 60-something. Yeah, so it's a little over 10. It's like, you know, 10, 11 episodes per year, which is like roughly yeah. one a month. Yeah. Sometimes we take four and a half months off. Look, you know, you were, you were, you were growing and raising a new human. Yeah. So. And then, <laughs> and then we'll do the 80s and put five episodes up in five consecutive days. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we won't disappear for another four and a half months. True. And I do, but I do like, I do want to take a moment to say thank you to all of our listeners who yeah. stick with us in these long sort of absences, because I mean, Zach and I, when we started this, it was, um, it was always for fun and our love of Meryl Streep. And we've sort of always agreed that like whatever life things were happening, was okay right. and it has allowed us to keep going because obviously so much has happened in the last five years in both of our lives and um that's what allows us to keep doing it and keep getting episodes to you so thank you for sticking with us yeah we really appreciate it. and i mean we don't we don't super get complaints about it. i do hear from people with some regularity wishing we were a little bit more consistent and what i would say to that is we wish we were too you know like it's not yeah. it's not that we don't want to be it's just there are things and and what i will say is i hope this doesn't sound just like a cop out but i do think our taking this at the pace that we can manage makes it a better show actually because i think if we were forced to do it in some capacity if we were forced to be regular I think our attention to detail would get thrown out the window pretty quickly. We'd probably so. shorten episodes. Yeah. I do have to say, too, though, with the people who have been like, I wish you were more regular, and we've got some reviews that say that, too, it's always said in the loveliest way, which is feels like a feels like a compliment yeah. that you want to hear us more regularly. I'm like, very pleased. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We are always thankful for people listening. It's it's shocking how many people listening to are out there listening to our podcast. We didn't know for the longest time. I mean, it's really been within the last year that we got the numbers and all of a sudden we were like shocked by how many people are listening to us. So not that it matters. Like I think you and I would be doing this if we had a tenth of the people listening, you know? Totally. Totally. So. But it is so exciting to see the reach and then to get emails from really everywhere. 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 Yeah. And if our, we our email from our fan in Wales, it comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
top of my head. I was like, this is so cool. And and I think they wrote us a couple of times really lovely things. But, um, you know, it's one of those things where a lot of times we uh, don't always respond back personally. But, you know, sometimes we do when we can or I do when I can. And um, I, you know, I hope people will still reach out to us when they feel like at Meryl Street Podcast at gmail.com. Even if you're just playing our, our silly games with us, which is a good segue Let's let's yeah. go to our, our next segment, which is six degrees of Meryl Streep. So um, our person last time, because we had just talked about Top Gun, the new Top Gun, was Miles Teller. You know, I guess that's sort of an easy one because he's in Top Gun right. with Tom Cruise, Lions for Lambs. And then I also thought of Rabbit Hole and Nicole Kidman. Yeah. And uh, Big Little Lies. Surely there's others. There are. Rabbit Hole is when I'm, uh, um, that was one that I was like immediately towards as well. I just sort of assumed, we didn't specifically say it, you know, but we had just spent that time talking about Top Gun. And I even said, because I just listened to the episode because I couldn't remember who the person was. So I just listened to the end of it. And I even said in our last episode, you know, we couldn't, we wanted to do somebody from Top Gun, but we couldn't do Top Tom Cruise because he was in a movie with Meryl. So we basically put it out in the episode that that one is that too obvious. Um, there are a couple other ones. He did a movie called War Dogs with um, Jonah Hill, who just did your favorite yeah. movie with Meryl. Don't look up. <laughs> Which we'll just keep referencing. The PTSD is strong, I know. Uh, and he's in that. I'm fairly certain he's done several movies with Shailene Woodley from Big Little Lies yes. as well. He did The Allegiant and Divergent and all of that. And they did that other he did a teen one. Series and then he did um, uh, Spectacular Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always get confused with The Fault in Our Stars. Yep, me not... too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So quite a few, really. But yeah, the ra- rabbit hole is the other one that I kind of immediately went to, and and rabbit hole, if I remember correctly, also has Diane Weist, who is just in um, Let Them All Talk with Meryl as well. So there's a couple connections in that one. Cool. Yeah. Um, speaking of Top Gun, our next person is also from Top Gun Maverick. It's Jennifer Connelly. So if you feel like playing, just let us know. Yeah, and of course, Top Gun. The, the, the Tom Cruise connection is off limits. Right. We've, we've set that rule. I think we should continue it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, she's had a longer, I mean, she's she's been around longer than Miles Teller. So it'll be interesting to see, like, pull from different uh, kind of eras of her career, actually, because she's been around a while. She's been doing her thing. Yeah. 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 Do you have any uh, movies you wish Meryl was in? God, I just saw something. And I tucked it away and I said, ah, oh, this is perfect for movies I wish Meryl was in. And then I have forgotten it. <laughs> hmm. No, okay. I don't have one. That's all right. I went down a couple rabbit holes trying to think of one, which I sometimes do. Um, because of the Angelica Houston comment, I looked through some of her stuff and was trying to see, like, is there anything that Meryl and her could have been paired up in? And there wasn't anything that was, like, super exciting that would have been, like, you know, that great a vehicle for the two of them. So then I went, obviously, to Diane Keaton's um, stuff, too. And I, I actually wonder if this is one that you mentioned. It feels vaguely familiar. Have you ever mentioned the Family Stone as, as one that Meryl could have played that role? Oh, I don't know. 
I mean, that would make sense. Yeah. Maybe our listeners would know. That's another really, really sweet performance by Diane Keaton. Yeah, there were moments in Marvin's room that reminded me of some of the more intimate moments with her kids in in Family Stone. It definitely called to that. Yeah, for sure. But that's a great one. And I did just think of one. Did you see Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris? I have not yet. No, I think, in fact, I have it sitting over there from my library. But yes. It is so charming and lovely. A total delight. Highly recommend it. Leslie Manville is a joy. But it would it would be cool to see Meryl Streep in that role, too. Huh. Nice. Um, on another note, because I talked about Leonardo DiCaprio, like this Marvin's room being in between Romeo and Juliet and Titanic. Um, just because I have her IMDb pulled up, I wanted to do the same for Diane Keaton. Kind of like, where, where did Marvin's room fall for all these people? Diane Keaton had just come off. The two movies she made right before this were The First Wives Club and Father of the Bride Part Two, which were both like pretty massive hits. Yeah. And then Marvin's Room. And then she kind of went back to doing like TV movies. She did a movie called The Only Thrill um, with uh, Robert Patrick, it looks like. I don't know who else is in the Sam Shepard. Um, and then a TV movie called Northern Lights with, oh. I don't know. So anyway, I'm not sure. Not, it, I think. What? I think I've seen Northern Lights. Hmm. And then after that, she, yeah, she went to, like, she did The Other Sister and Hanging Up and Town and Country and some other stuff. But this is sort of like, this is an interesting period in her career because she had just come off of some really pretty massive hits and then kind of, I don't know, did some stuff that wasn't received so well. And it wasn't for a couple of years until she kind of did Something's Gotta Give in the Family Stone. I know you're not a fan of that movie, but Something's Gotta Give in the Family Stone and um, Morning Glory and some other, you know, some other ones beyond that, that I don't know. Yeah. I kind of remember Something's Gotta Give kind of kickstarting her, her career again. But she also Um, is in a lot of stuff. She's in a lot of stuff, especially now that like nobody's ever really heard of. I watched one with her not that long ago. It was with her and um, Jeremy Irons. I'm going to look it up to see what it was. It's called Love Weddings and Other Disasters. It's her and Jeremy Irons and uh, Maggie Grace, who is on Lost, is really the lead of that movie. Um, Oh, yeah. It's, but she's in a lot of movies that like nobody has really heard of her and um, Brendan Gleeson were in a movie called Homestead or Hampstead a few years ago. Yeah. I remember that. I haven't seen it, but I've wanted to. Yeah, she really she works a lot. Like she just made a movie called Mac and Rita that's right. on Prime. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she she turns them out. Yeah, she that's that's exactly right. Yeah, she she puts out a lot of stuff, but it's just one of those things where it seems like in the last few years even some of the stuff that was a little bit more profile high profile like that palms movie that she did with and book club with candace bergen and jane fonda um you know like some of that stuff i don't know it seems like it disappears and is kind of like gone from our collective consciousness right away i don't know yeah i will tell you if you do not follow her on instagram do so immediately she is just a kooky delight um, she will, <laughs> she recently posted a montage of doors because she really loves doors. Yeah. Uh, she took us on a tour of her pantry to go through snacks. Um, and <laughs> she's just truly funny. She's, she's follower. Yeah. I, I do follow her. She's a very, uh, 
yeah, she's a she's a unique one to follow. You never know what you're gonna yeah. get. No. Can, no, she's surprised with you. Candace Bergen is like that too, except I I feel like Candace Bergen has almost completely stopped posting, it seems like. She's very rarely posting these days, it seems like. Yeah, it makes me sad because she was really funny as well. Yeah. But so there are a few of them out there like that. I I'm not even I'm not super into Instagram. I'm still kind of team Facebook, although as much as anybody's team Facebook, you know, I think there are a lot of bad things about it too. But I I understand the platform of Facebook so much more than Instagram. Anyway, I'm sure this is fascinating for our listeners here. But <laughs> I wish Meryl would get on Instagram. <laughs> I think it is very intentional that she is not. Oh, 100%. She's just not that person to no. do that. Um, did you see that Grace Gummer is pregnant? Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's cool. Yeah. It's crazy. It makes me feel old, but... yeah. So that I think will be, because I, I, Mamie has at least one, right? It has at least one kid? I think so. I think so, too. I'm fairly certain this will not be Meryl's first grandchild, but nice. All right, well, did we, we haven't said what our next movie is, have we? We haven't. What Am is, I saying it or you? You, you say it. You <laughs> give it away. Uh, we are going to be doing the r- really joyful, fun comedy called Rendition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That might be an interesting one to to listen to. We'll see. It is going to be interesting. I think it's going to be interesting to go back to that snapshot in time. Yes. It's very 2006. Very different world. Yeah. 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 It's very like just, was that, no, that was during the Bush administration, wasn't it? I was going to say it was post. During or just after. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll see. We'll see how that one goes. It's been a while since I've revisited. In fact, I don't know if I have revisited that one. I've seen it, but I don't know if I've seen it more than once. I might have just saw it when it came out. Yeah, same. I've only seen it once. Yeah. So. so. We'll cool. See. And it, we will not be four and a half months, promise. Yeah. And then we believe after that we will be doing a tribute episode, but we will uh, check in in that next time. We'll let you know, but that may be coming at you after that. We don't have that many left of Meryl's movies. We have less than 10 to go probably so um we'll see yeah yeah it's crazy we'll we'll spread them out have some fun yeah 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 and, yeah, yeah. and then we can start doing themed episodes you know yeah we can do whatever that's gonna be want. really fun yeah to revisit some titles yeah we get i i'm looking forward to ones where we can talk about like the 80s movies like as a as a clump of movies the 90s movies as a clump of movies and we can discuss like you know things that they have in common things they don't things that we liked about them you know as a kind of you know body of work yeah that's gonna be so fun oh i'm so excited yeah look at us go go team yeah so all right well thanks everybody for listening we will be back at you as soon as we can we always appreciate you and we will see you next time that's all